We are in a series through the book of Daniel, and uh, we're, uh, we're going to be in Daniel through Thanksgiving, and then we're going to come back and we're going to hit some of the prophetic literature in Daniel. We're going to hit that uh, come the first of the year. So I'm really looking forward to, to, to both of these segments. But this morning we are in Daniel 4, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Daniel 4. I'm going to be referring back and forth to that, actually Daniel 2, 3, and 4 uh, throughout the morning. But uh, if you want to follow along, you can turn there now. In a classic Peanuts cartoon, Charlie Brown told Lucy, someone has said that we should live each day as if it were our last day. At that, Lucy panicked. Ah, this is the last day of my life. I only have 24 hours to live. Help me, help me. Ah, and with that, she ran off. Charlie Brown thought for a moment and finally said, well, I guess some philosophies just aren't for all people. Well, whether or not that philosophy was good for Lucy, it sure could benefit most of us. In our culture, we are so driven by so many things that we often forget what's truly important. That is, until some calamity comes our way leaving us with no option but to zero in on things that matter most. You know, it's amazing how quickly a consultation with a doctor, a notice from an employer, a phone call from a loved one in the middle of the night can cause us to drop everything that we thought was essential and deal with what really is. Sometimes things that get our attention simply happen because we live in a fallen world. Because of sin, there's sickness, there's trouble, even death. You see, it all comes as a part of the sin package. But trouble can also come as a direct result of God's discipline. Like a loving parent, God refuses to ignore actions of his children that would lead to their destruction or the destruction of others. See, we may live as if no one is watching, Yet, someone is indeed watching everything we do right down to the thoughts that we think. And and it's not Santa Claus. God was certainly watching the man at the center of our text, Nebuchadnezzar. Ruler of the mighty Babylonian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar was unsurpassed in wealth and power among the people of his day. There was no one greater than he. The problem. The problem was that he knew it, and that pride, that arrogance was a constant stumbling block. Although to all the world Nebuchadnezzar appeared to be an enemy to God and his people, the God of Israel actually seemed to to treat him as one of his own. Jeremiah chapter 27 verse 6, God actually calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant pointing to the fact that the fall of Jerusalem, the captivity of his people, were actually acts of God, not a foreign king. God was using Nebuchadnezzar to accomplish his will. But even beyond that, God seemed to be reaching out to Nebuchadnezzar in ways that could only be described as grace. Daniel 2. It finds the king in great distress over a dream 
that he had had that no one could interpret, no one but Daniel. Daniel came to the king's aid, not only revealing the dream scene by scene, but telling what each scene meant. Daniel made it clear he himself deserved none of the credit. That at Verse 27, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven, and he reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar uh, what will be in the latter days. You know, when all was said and done, the king seemed to agree with Daniel. He fell on his face. He gave honor to Daniel and Daniel's God. Verse 47, he said, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Now, you might expect that to have become a turning point in the king's life, but the only turn he took was a wrong turn. Chapter 3 begins with the king making a 90-foot-tall statue of gold to honor himself. In the dream he had had in chapter 2, he'd seen a statue that, according to Daniel, represented the greatest of the world's kingdoms, present and future. And of all of those kingdoms, his was the greatest. Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold. Of course, Daniel also revealed that there was a still greater kingdom, greater than all worldly kingdoms combined, represented by a rock that grew into a mountain. It shattered the statue to pieces. And that rock, That rock that became a mountain that shattered all worldly kingdoms, that rock still still is, always has been, the eternal kingdom of the living God. I believe that dream was given to Nebuchadnezzar because God was calling Nebuchadnezzar to get his eyes off himself, to see that there was a kingdom greater than than his, a king greater than he. But in his pride, he ignored God's call and constructed his own personal idol, a completely golden statue that was all about him. And to assure that everyone would worship what his own hands had made, he declared that anyone who refused to worship it, uh, well, would get the death penalty, an, an awful penalty. They would be thrown into a burning, fiery furnace. Again, you'd think at this point that, well, maybe God is getting fed up with things, right? That maybe he would give up on this arrogant ruler. That maybe as soon as the penalty was announced, that an angel would just go and pick the king up by his heels and cast him into the furnace. Uh, But once again, our God of grace showed grace. He made sure that in the crowd that day, three of his best would be present. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Three of his people who would stand up to the king. They would refuse to bow down to that image of gold. Now, I call this grace because of the sermon that followed. 
The young men declared, verse 17, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Powerful message. It was clear. The God of Israel, Yahweh, is not only worth living for, he is worth dying for. He, he alone is supreme. Heaven is in charge. Not Babylon and certainly not Nebuchadnezzar. Well, the king's reaction was anything but uh, penitent. In a furious rage, he had the flame turned up seven times hotter than it had ever been. And then he had those young men bound and thrown into the fire. But the sermon wasn't over. Even as the flames sought to consume these men of faith, indeed, flames that had killed the guards who threw them in, God provided an unforgettable illustration as to just how great He truly is. As the king and his counselors, as they, as they looked on, those three young men, rather than being consumed by the fire, just walked around in the midst of it. And out of nowhere, a fourth person actually joined them. And according to the king, that fourth person's appearance was like a son of the gods. Now, I've been preaching nearly 40 years, and I have never given or heard an illustration more powerful, more pointed than the one God gave to Nebuchadnezzar. And it worked. Humbled by what he saw, the king called those young men to come out of the furnace. And as I was reading that, I, I kept thinking about Jesus calling Lazarus out of the, out of the tomb. Uh, what was meant to be a place of death was turned into a place of life by the giver of life. After Nebuchadnezzar had examined them and found that there was no harm that had come to them, this is what he declared. This is verse 28 of chapter 3. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their god. He even followed that up with a very Babylonian decree that anyone who speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. I'm guessing you've not heard that as a punishment in too many churches. But this was Nebuchadnezzar, right? They'll be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. But listen to this. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. It's interesting, isn't it? Right before he threw them into the fire, he said, What God would be able to deliver you from this? And Nebuchadnezzar, in his own words, says, Oh, that God, because he can do anything. We'll chalk up his uh, tearing limb from limb comments. We'll just chalk that up to the king being overly enthusiastic. But you do get the idea, right? That the king is finally getting the point. God is God. There is no other. All people, including himself, they must honor 
God over everything and everyone. So, did Nebuchadnezzar indeed get what God was teaching him? Maybe, maybe in the moment. But like so many of us, often it takes more than one or two lessons for God's point to get permanent. I, I, I've learned through the years the wisdom of a statement that my dad made. As long as there is breath in the body, there is hope for the soul. The very fact that everyone in this room just drew another breath is evidence of God's grace. He is working in you and me even now to bring about changes that He desires. He is shaping us into the image of His Son. When He's finished with you, You'll know it. You won't be here anymore. As of Daniel 4, there was still breath in Nebuchadnezzar's body. And apparently there was still a boatload of pride. In order to get that from this text, you almost have to read this chapter backwards. Nebuchadnezzar himself wrote the words recorded in chapter 4. But only after he had spent some more time in God's classroom. I love the fact that this, this king, about, about whom no one dared utter a negative word for fear of their life, the same king spilled his guts in an open letter to the world, the entire world, describing how God took him to task, how God broke Nebuchadnezzar's stubborn will, how God humbled him completely. It was painful. It was humiliating. But Nebuchadnezzar put it in print for all the world to see. He begins the chapter this way. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done, and I find this interesting, for me. Not to me. This is for me. This is for my benefit. So the things that are going to happen that you're going to read about later in the chapter, that was for him. How great are his signs. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. And then he goes on to recount another dream that he had had. Uh, a troubling dream, a dream given to him by God. In it, he saw a huge tree that even as he watched was growing still greater, continuing to grow large and strong until the top touched the sky. Visible to the ends of the earth, it was a beautiful tree with abundant fruit, providing food for all creatures, giving shelter for all the beasts of the field, and all the birds of the air that lived in its branches. But then, a messenger came down from heaven and said in a loud voice, Cut down that tree. Trim off its branches. Strip the leaves. Scatter the fruit. Let the animals and the birds flee from it. Leave just a stump bound with iron and bronze. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. 
and let him live among the animals. Let his mind be changed from that of a man to that of an animal until seven times pass by. And then Nebuchadnezzar heard these solemn words. Verse 17. The sentence is by decree of the watchers. The decision by the word of the holy ones. To the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. And he gives it to whom he will. And he sets over it the lowliest of men. And with that, the king awoke. And as he thought about the dream, he became more and more afraid. So he called his his wise man and his magicians to interpret the dream. But they couldn't, or in my opinion, they wouldn't. After all, it would seem obvious even to non-wise men and magicians that this dream was about their king and bad things were about to happen to him. I mean, really bad things. And no one wanted, wanted to tell the king news like that. So the king called the one man that he knew he could trust. He called Daniel. And Daniel told him the truth. The dream was indeed about the king. God was about to humble him by driving him into the wild, making him appear a madman living among the beasts of the field until he would acknowledge that heaven rules, that God alone is God. What's striking to me in Daniel's report, again, a report apparently included by the king himself as part of his own letter, There was an out that was given, an out for the king. Daniel seemed to truly care about Nebuchadnezzar. He closed with these words. This is verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps... Be a lengthening of your prosperity. In other words, my friend, if you're smart, you'll repent right now on the spot and you will change your ways. Maybe then that dream you dreamed will stay just a dream. But you have got to humble yourself or else God will humble you. Unfortunately, Nebuchadnezzar chose the latter path. But I want to point out that Daniel's very plea is evidence of God's grace. Every time a person walks away from the gospel message unchanged, unrepentant, the fact they remain alive to hear it again is Almighty God showing His great patience and mercy. You see, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter 3.9 My first preaching ministry was at the church my family attended when I was growing up. As a teenager, we left that church and started attending another one, but we still kept close ties with those that were there. By the time I was called back to that church 
to preach this time as a student in college. The church had dwindled drastically in numbers, but I, I still knew most of the people that were there. Most of them I'd known from childhood. One man in particular stood out. He was one of those guys who was always there. And because he was a big man, <laughs> he always stood out. Uh, he was... He and his wife would typically sit um, just a few rows from the front. So I always noticed him every Sunday morning. I thought I knew him, but it surprised me to learn that he had never given his life to Christ. It wasn't that he wasn't paying attention, nor that he didn't care. In fact, he seemed to have what a friend of mine used to call white-knuckle syndrome. He'd sit there throughout every service, bowing his head for every prayer, singing the words to every song, listening quietly to every message. But when the decision time came, he'd stand with the rest of the congregation, he'd grasp the back of the pew in front of him as firmly as he could and hold on for dear life. Facing him only a few feet away during every single invitation, I could see that he was struggling. He seemed to wrestle with himself week after week. Sometimes he'd even break out in a sweat. Yet he just kept holding on to the back of that pew so tightly his knuckles turned white. He and I became good friends over the years. And I shared the gospel every time I could in every way I could think of. I tried to assuage his fears that he might have to deal with any excuse that might keep him from making a decision for Christ. You know, his answer was always the same. He would say, I, 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 I just don't know. I just can't. I just can't. For years, we did that same dance over and over again. Till finally, one day, Late in my ministry there, something clicked, and he came forward and surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. It was a moment of true celebration and relief for the entire church as he came up out of the waters of baptism, having his sins finally washed away. I mean, none of us could contain our joy. But there was even greater joy in heaven. Because God knew what we did not. That within a matter of months, this man, who hadn't been born again until he was past 60, would suddenly and very unexpectedly pass away. Even today, I am so grateful our God is a patient God. God is patient with us. But he does not force faith on anyone. He convicts, he counsels, he disciplines, he corrects, he exhorts, he encourages, he pleads to the very last breath. But he will not make you accept him. Our belief is a choice that we all make. God will do all that he can to make the consequences of rejection clear. But the decision? Ah, the decision he leaves up to you and me. That's what he did with Nebuchadnezzar. 
knowing that only something drastic would bring him to faith. God did something indeed drastic. He warned Nebuchadnezzar in advance of exactly what holding on to his pride would cost him. And then God did what he said he would do. I, I want you to remember that. If, just remember, he always keeps his promises. Well, the next 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar went about his business as if nothing, well, as if there was nothing to worry about. Putting both the dream and the God who gave him the dream out of mind. And then one day, verse 29, at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And while his words revealing his own unrepentant heart were still in his mouth, that voice that makes mountains tremble spoke from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers. His nails were like bird's claws. All of this because of his own stubborn pride. Pride has kept more people from coming to God than all the sins of man put together. It worms its way in slowly but surely, putting self in, putting self in the place that is reserved only for God. It may not be a literal throne that we have in our hearts, a literal throne like Nebuchadnezzar had. But believe me, your heart has a throne. And someone, someone is always on it. Ruling everything you do. Everything you say. And any time, any time you find yourself knowing that what God wants you to do, and you refuse to do it, you are saying to God, not your will, but my will be done. And the more you do that, the easier it gets until finally God is completely pushed aside. And there is nothing that describes our culture better than that. But I want to say that there is good news here. Our God is a God of unimaginable grace. And whenever a person surrenders to Him, regardless of what they have done. Yes, even that. 
Whatever you were thinking in your heart, in your mind just now, even that, He forgives. He always takes us back. God has never met a prodigal He didn't love. And that includes Nebuchadnezzar. Eventually, the king lifted up his eyes. He looked to heaven. His reason returned. And he blessed the Most High God, giving him the honor and praise that was due him. He finally admitted Yahweh rules over all for all time. And he closed his letter with these words. Verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right. His ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. In other words, okay, God, I get it. There's only one God, and I'm not it. I want you to do something with me just now. I I want you to imagine that instead of me, I want you to imagine that Jesus, Jesus himself is standing before you in person. He is in the room. I want you to imagine that Jesus is addressing one thing in your life, just one thing in your life that he wants you to do. Not your neighbor, not your spouse, not your children. You. What would it be? Maybe it's a sin that you have held on to for a long time. And he is telling you, you need to repent. Maybe it is some service he has impressed on your heart that he wants you to do. Maybe it's like CJ was saying earlier. Maybe it's, maybe it's sharing the gospel with a neighbor and you keep saying, Oh, no, God, no, 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 I, I, I can't do this. Somebody else needs to do this, somebody else. And if you've been giving God excuse after excuse after excuse for something He's calling you to do, stop it. Because Jesus is calling. Maybe, maybe, maybe it involves making something right between you and someone else. Asking forgiveness for yourself or finally forgiving someone who wronged you. Or maybe, maybe it is just time to finally surrender your heart to God to be baptized into Jesus Christ to take hold of him to put your sins behind you Christ before you see I don't know what that is for you what that one thing that he is saying to you this morning I don't know what that is but God does and so do you Everybody has something. And so I encourage you, whatever he is calling you to do, just do it. Humble yourself before God. He'll do as he promised. He will lift you up. Oh, what a great God we serve.